Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us. Episode 77, Space Shuttle Flight 10, STS-41B. A big leap for Bruce. Last time, we talked about STS-9, the first flight of Space Lab. The part test flight, part science flight mission was a resounding success, clearing the way for a new type of shuttle mission in the future. We ran into some excitement when it came time to return home, with Columbia dropping two general-purpose computers and landing with two APUs on fire. But thanks to the extensive training of the crew and the redundant design of critical orbiter systems, Columbia landed safely at Edwards Air Force Base. Alright, so I'm sure many of you are wondering, hang on a second, 41B? Did he say STS-41B? What happened to the 30 or so missions in between? Well, it's complicated. Buckle up. First, the easy part. What happened to STS-10? Nothing too mysterious here. Its payload wasn't ready, so the mission got cancelled. But this left NASA with a problem. STS-11 was already on the manifest. Do they rename it? Do they just go straight from STS-9 to STS-11? Wouldn't that be confusing to people? Or what if they just delayed STS-10 and did it later when it was ready? But then you would end up with STS-9, STS-11, STS-10, and that's even more confusing. So there was a desire to come up with a new mission numbering scheme to avoid this awkward situation. The out-of-order number problem seems to be the main motivation, but there was also another motivation. At least, there are persistent rumors and little comments about another motivation. Because after STS-10, 11, and 12 would be STS-13. NASA had scoffed at superstitious folks getting nervous about the number 13 before, and just look where that got Jim Lovell, Fred Hayes, and Jack Swaggart. Perhaps it was best to avoid this tricky number entirely. Whether it was to avoid confusion, to avoid bad luck, or both, the nice, straightforward number system was traded in for something a little different. So, what does STS-41B actually mean? It breaks down into three parts. At risk of making things even more complicated, I'll start with the middle number since it's the easiest to explain. Thanks to the partnership with the DoD, NASA planned on making a number of shuttle launches out of Vandenberg Air Force Base, delivering payloads to polar orbits. That meant that there would be two possible launch sites, and that's what the middle number in the mission designation represents. One for the Kennedy Space Center, and two for Vandenberg Air Force Base. So STS-41B, with its one, is launching out of the Kennedy Space Center. Easy enough. Next, let's tackle the first number. This number represents the last number of the year that the mission was scheduled to fly. Yeah. So, since STS-41B was intended to fly in 1984, its mission designation started off with a 4. As many people have pointed out, you've got to wonder what the plan would be in 1994 or 2004. But since the system didn't last that long, we never get to find out. Lastly, the letter at the end. This represented the order that the mission would fly in its given year, starting with A, then B, and so on. Add it all up, and STS-41B means that it was supposed to fly in 1984, out of the Kennedy Space Center, and it was the second flight of the year. Alright, I think we got it. Except, hang on a second, STS-41B was flying in February of 1984, and STS-9 flew in November of 1983. 
So doesn't that make this the first flight of 1984? And therefore, shouldn't it be STS-41A? Ah, <laughs> you wish. No, as if this whole system wasn't confusing enough, the year that we've been referring to this whole time is actually the fiscal year. And NASA starts its fiscal year in October, which makes this first flight of 1984 the second flight of 1984. I don't understand this system at all. I mean, I can decode it, and I hope that after my explanation, you can too, but like, what? Why? It literally solves none of the earlier problems, since we can and will still end up with cancelled and out-of-order missions. Maybe the thought was to just make every mission number confusing, so that the weird ones would blend in? I don't know. This is getting way ahead of ourselves and glossing over many details that we'll dig into later, but after the Challenger accident, the prospect of launching the shuttle out of Vandenberg faded into a historical what-if, and NASA returned to a more straightforward numbering system. So while the Challenger's final flight, the 25th flight of the space shuttle, was STS-51L, the next flight would be nice, easy STS-26. So anyway, with that cleared up as much as possible, STS-41B. Let's get into it. On tap for this mission are a couple of ComSat deployments on our old buddy, the PAMD Upper Stage, the evaluation of some fancy new EVA tools, and some orbital rendezvous practice. All of this, along with a few items on earlier flights, were key tests of equipment and procedures that were required for STS-41C, which would be the shuttle's first attempt at on-orbit repair of a satellite. For this mission, Challenger was back on the launch pad with a crew of five. Flying as commander was the flight's only non-rookie, Vance Brand. Of course, we know Brand from his flights on the Apollo-Soyuz test project and STS-5. This is his third of four space flights. Joining Brand at the front of the flight deck was Hoot Gibson. Robert Gibson, who went by the nickname Hoot, was born on October 30th, 1946 in Cooperstown, New York. Gibson kicked off his post-high school education by earning an associate's degree in engineering science from Suffolk County Community College in 1966 before continuing on to earn a bachelor's degree in aeronautical engineering from California Polytechnic State University in 1969. From there, he joined the U.S. Navy, working his way through various flight instruction before finding himself in a fighter squadron flying over Vietnam. Returning home, he became an instructor pilot flying the F-14A and then graduating from the U.S. Naval Test Pilot School in 1977. In case you're wondering about the nickname, Gibson himself says there's no interesting story there, it's just that there was an actor with the name Hoot Gibson and, well, not every nickname can be super clever. He joined NASA in 1978, and this is his first of five space flights. Joining the pilots would be three mission specialists, with mission specialist one being Bruce McCandless. Bruce McCandless was born on June 8, 1937 in Boston, Massachusetts. He earned a Bachelor of Science degree from the U.S. Naval Academy in 1958 before continuing on to earn a Master's in Electrical Engineering from Stanford in 1965 and a master's in business administration in 1987. He learned to fly with the U.S. Navy, serving aboard multiple aircraft carriers, and even participating in the naval blockade during the Cuban Missile Crisis. 
He joined NASA as part of Astronaut Group 5 in 1966, serving in support and backup roles in Apollo and Skylab. He also worked on the maneuvering jetpack that was tested inside the Skylab Orbital Workshop foreshadowing. Even if you're hearing his name for the first time, I 100% guarantee that you've heard his voice before. Particularly a clip of him saying, Okay, Neil, we can see you coming down the ladder now. Ring a bell? Yep, he was Capcom for the Apollo 11 EVA. This is his first of two flights. Mission Specialist 2 was Bob Stewart. Robert Stewart was born on August 13, 1942 in Washington, D.C. He earned a bachelor's in math from the University of Southern Mississippi in 1964 and a master's in aerospace engineering from the University of Texas at Arlington in 1972. Between those degrees, he joined the U.S. Army, where he learned how to fly helicopters and racked up over a thousand hours of combat time. He later became an instructor and test pilot for a variety of rotary wing vehicles, aka helicopters, and participated in the development of the Black Hawk helicopter. He joined NASA in 1978 as part of the gigantic astronaut Group 8, making him the first person to fly in space to have served in the U.S. Army. This is his first of two flights. And rounding out the crew was Mission Specialist 3, Ron McNair. Ronald McNair was born on October 21, 1950, in Lake City, South Carolina. He earned a bachelor's in physics from North Carolina A&T State University in 1971 and a doctorate in physics from MIT in 1976. And he didn't just attend these schools, he rocked them. He graduated magna cum laude from North Carolina A&T and earned a long list of scholarships, fellowships, and everything from the National Society of Black Professional Engineers Distinguished National Scientist Award to an Amateur Athletic Union Karate Gold Medal. That's right, he was also a 5th degree black belt at karate. During his time at MIT, he studied lasers, helping to develop new laser applications, including satellite-to-satellite communication. McNair joined NASA along with Gibson and Stewart as part of the class of 1978, the TFNGs, which again, definitely, definitely stood for 35 new guys. This is his first mission out of two spaceflight assignments, with his second being the doomed flight of Challenger on STS-51L. The mission was delayed by 10 days to allow more time to investigate the APU issues on STS-9, but on the rescheduled launch date, no issues were encountered. On February 3rd, 1984, Challenger lifted off right on time at 7 a.m. The launch was uneventful, but for a second time, evidence was later discovered of hot gases escaping field joints on the SRBs and eroding an O-ring. Loss of these O-rings would be catastrophic, but the erosion was within limits and there was still the backup O-ring, so the reaction was one of concern but not panic. But it's worth noting that with 10 flights in the books, two of them had this worrying symptom. First on the agenda on day one of the flight was the deployment of the West Star 6 communications satellite. If this were a video series instead of a podcast, you'd recognize West Star 6 right away since it used the same spacecraft bus and PAM-D upper stage as the Palapa, ANIC, and SBS satellites that we've already seen deployed. This spacecraft would be focusing on business communications for the United States, allowing companies to easily transmit video, voice, faxes, and other data. 
The Challenger crew opened the Sun Shield, spun Westar 6 up, and deployed it without incident before hopping away in their orbit to create some distance before the PAM-D motor kicked in. Ten seconds after ignition, ground controllers discovered that all was not well with Westar 6. The PAM-D had failed, leaving the spacecraft in a 300 by 1200 kilometer orbit, far short of the 42,000 or so kilometers required for a geostationary orbit. This was a crippling problem for Westar. Satellites are almost always designed for very specific orbits. Sometimes they can perform some of their functions from a slightly different orbit, and often they can limp into their intended orbit by sacrificing station-keeping fuel. But this orbit was both completely useless for its intended function and far too low to limp into its intended orbit. They were dead in the water. Bummer. The second commsat in the payload bay was Palapa B-2, which would be joining Palapa B-1, which we saw deployed on STS-7. It was originally scheduled to be deployed on the second day of the mission, but since they had the same spacecraft bus and same upper stage as the ill-fated West Star 6, it was decided to hold off and evaluate the situation. NASA gave the Indonesian customer the option of returning home in the payload bay and launching on a later flight, or going forward with the deployment even without a clear picture of what caused the issue on West Star 6. The West Star failure could have been a fluke. It could have been hit by debris. It could have been something not related to the common elements between the two spacecraft. Or Palapa B-2 could suffer the exact same fate. Well, Indonesia decided to go for it, and Palapa B-2 suffered the exact same fate. Ten seconds into its ride to geostationary transfer orbit, the upper stage failed, and Palapa B-2 was left in a nearly identical 275 by 1200 kilometer orbit. The root cause of both failures were eventually traced back to a bad batch of the special material used to make the nozzle wall of the PAM-D engine. Bubbles in the wall changed the properties of the material and allowed rocket exhaust to burn through the nozzle. And that was the end of that. So, bummer for the West Star 6 and Palapa B-2 teams, but believe it or not, we haven't seen the last of these unlucky spacecraft. Stay tuned. The upcoming Solar Max repair mission would include a first for the shuttle, a ground-up rendezvous. That is, they would be launching to rendezvous with an object already in orbit. This sort of long-range rendezvous is considerably different than the proximity operations practiced with SPAS-01 on STS-7. There's more time for dispersions to build up, both from orbital perturbations and the usual uncertainty that comes with maneuvering. It also depends on new tools like long-range radar. With that in mind, Challenger launched with a device to practice long-range rendezvous, the Integrated Rendezvous Target. The Integrated Rendezvous Target was basically just a big shiny balloon with enough tungsten ballast added to make the whole thing weigh 200 pounds. The ballast was added because otherwise the tenuous upper atmosphere would cause its orbit to degrade too quickly. But at the end of the day, it was just a 2 meter wide balloon that would be sent off to drift on its own. But since this is NASA, it gets a fancy name, Integrated Rendezvous Target which I'll now be calling the IRT because I'm sick of saying Integrated Rendezvous Target. On day four of the flight, Challenger oriented itself belly forward and ejected the IRT out of the payload bay at about half a meter a second. 
Since that meant that it was pushed backwards, the IRT's orbit was slightly lowered, meaning that it was slightly faster, meaning that it would start to move ahead of Challenger over time. The plan was for the IRT equipment to inject a small amount of gas into the balloon, which should easily inflate it in the vacuum of space. The crew would first perform a series of rendezvous maneuvers and sightings and such from a range of around 10 kilometers. After that, they would settle in for a sleep period, allowing the two spacecraft to gently drift apart. By the time they woke up, the IRT would be over 200 kilometers away, and they could go chase it down. It wouldn't be the same as a full rendezvous from launch, but it was good practice. Here's the thing, though. None of that happened. The IRT was deployed no problem, but when the command was issued to inflate it, the thing just blew up. Which is funny, because in the mission report, it simply states that the IRT quote-unquote failed. But what Bob Stewart actually radioed down was that it blew up. This caused a little confusion at first, since some folks in Mission Control thought that it had successfully blown up, as in inflated. But no, he clarified, it exploded. Whoops. What actually happened was that as the IRT was deployed, lanyards were pulled to activate it. But some didn't get pulled, notably the part that released its restraints. But since the part that injected gas did work, they basically tried to inflate a balloon inside a cage. Kabloomers. So the IRT was a bust, pause for laughter, but it wasn't a complete loss. The crew were able to use their instruments to track what remained of it out past 9 kilometers, so that's something. Next up, the EVAs. This flight had two EVAs scheduled, both of which were mostly aimed at evaluating equipment and procedures for the Solar Max mission along with a smattering of other tasks. In fact, since I won't come back to it later, I wanted to quickly point out that one of these side tasks was trying out a tool that would be used in a mission that was being considered, refueling Landsat 4. This caught my eye, since in my day job, I'm working on Restore-L, a robotic mission to refuel Landsat 7. So I guess we've come full circle. The star of these EVAs was, without a doubt, the Manned Maneuvering Unit, or MMU. This is that funny little jetpack thing in that one photo that you've all seen a billion times before, with the astronaut floating free in space, tilted slightly against the horizon. Over the years, we've seen a few stabs at this concept. In fact, if we go all the way back to the first EVA where NASA tried to get some actual work done, Gemini 9A, one of the main tasks was to try out the Air Force's Astronaut Maneuvering Unit. Unfortunately for the Air Force, nobody knew how difficult EVAs were going to be, so by the time Gene Cernan made his way to the jetpack, he was too exhausted to continue. It almost flew again later in Project Gemini, but things never quite came together, and that was it for the AMU. There were also ancestors of this device in the form of a couple of jetpacks used inside Skylab, since Skylab's orbital workshop was so cavernous, it was actually possible to gently zip around inside and see how the controls handled. But all that is in the past. We want to know about the present. Well, the present of 1984. So what is the manned maneuvering unit? Simply put, it is a backpack with two big nitrogen tanks, 24 thrusters, and a couple of hand controllers. Its purpose was to allow for astronauts to perform tetherless spacewalks. With that kind of freedom, astronauts could easily move themselves around the payload bay, 
up and down satellites being worked on, or even out of the payload bay entirely. The device itself is pretty slick. An astronaut would suit up like normal, exit the airlock, make their way to an MMU mounted on the side of the payload bay, and strap themselves in, which could be done unassisted. Once powered on, the suit had enough battery to support a 6-hour EVA. Of course, depending on how much the astronaut burned through their supply of nitrogen propellant, they might have to come back well before 6 hours was up. But no worries, its propellant could be recharged in only about half an hour. The 24 thrusters fired little blasts of nitrogen gas with a force of 7.5 newtons. That's pretty interesting, because when used in low power mode, the attitude control thrusters on Project Mercury were only about 4.5 newtons. The thrusters didn't burn propellant like normal, they basically just sprayed nitrogen out in a controlled fashion. Since there was no toxic fuel or actual burning going on, plume impingement wasn't as big of a concern with the MMU, which made it easier to approach delicate spacecraft. The astronaut had two controls in front of them. On their right hand, a stick that controlled rotation, pitch, roll, and yaw. On their left, a stick that controlled translation, up and down, left and right, back and forth. They could also switch on an attitude hold mode, in which the backpack would attempt to maintain its orientation. In all, the whole thing weighed about 300 pounds and allowed an astronaut to putter along at 1 to 3 miles per hour. Oh, and if you're confused about my constantly switching back and forth between metric and imperial units, hi, welcome to being an engineer in the United States. I don't like it either, that's just how my brain works. As the first EVA got underway, Bruce McCandless and Bob Stewart clambered out of the airlock and into the payload bay. McCandless would be trying the MMU out first, and I know that's the part you're all waiting to hear about, so let's ride along. After strapping himself into the jetpack with no issues, McCandless began to slowly move around the payload bay, calling out, That may have been one small step for Neil, but it was a heck of a big leap for me. Which is pretty great, since as we learned earlier, it was McCandless who was on the receiving end of the famous Armstrong quote he was now riffing on. After some initial tests to make sure everything was behaving as expected, McCandless began moving up out of the payload bay while turning to face the orbiter as he moved backwards. Over the course of six minutes, he made his way out to a distance of 150 feet from the orbiter. I believe it was on this part of the EVA that Hoot Gibson snapped a picture of McCandless that would go on to become one of the most famous spaceflight photos of all time. Something about this photo captured the attention of the world. The surreal sight of an astronaut flying free and unassisted, the fact that McCandless had lowered his reflective visor, making him an anonymous figure who was easy to project on, the beauty of the Earth beneath him. I don't know what it is, but it's an unbelievable photo. And if you're wondering what little unexpected wrinkle or nuance I can add to this famous moment for humanity, as I so love to do, don't worry, I've got you covered. While Bruce was busy making his way into every physics textbook ever made, he was freezing his butt off. It turns out that thanks to the lessons learned on earlier EVAs, the cooling system in a spacesuit is pretty aggressive. Moving and working in space is hard work, so astronauts can work up a sweat. But not astronauts who are casually cruising around with a nitrogen-powered backpack. This is even more true when you leave the heat-reflecting payload bay and are just alone in the vacuum. 
McCandless was so cold that he insisted he had to turn off the cooling system. Engineers on the ground didn't love this idea, since with any critical space system, there's always a chance that if you turn it off, it might not turn back on. But eventually he had no choice, and he turned it on and off throughout the spacewalk. Well, add one more to the lessons learned column. Upon returning to the orbiter, McCandless set out once again, this time to a distance of 320 feet before coming back in. No problem. Really, other than the excessive cooling, the only issue encountered was a slight judder when translating while in the attitude hold mode, thanks to a slightly off center of gravity. No big deal, though. The rest of the EVA was uneventful, with Stewart taking the same MMU out for a spin. Sorry, Bob, no famous photos for you. I'm going a little long here, so I'll leave the details for another episode, but I do want to note that this EVA also marked the first use of the manipulator foot restraint, which will go on to become a staple of NASA spacewalks. McCandless strapped his feet into the device, which was attached to the robot arm, and then moved around the payload bay by Ron McNair on the robot controls. In fact, while the MMU is pretty cool, it was also fairly risky, and it turned out not the most necessary. So, while it would only be used on three flights, the foot restraint would be used for the rest of the shuttle program. The second EVA went less smoothly. The original plan was to attach a special payload to the robot arm and have astronauts wearing the MMU practice capturing it just like a real satellite. And what could that special payload be? Well, it's our old buddy Spaz-01, back for a second flight. Don't get too excited, though, because Spaz-01 was staying right where it was in the payload bay. That's because when the remote manipulator system was brought out for a couple of tests ahead of the second EVA, the wrist joint failed to respond. The crew probably could have gotten by without the wrist joint, that's just me guessing, but they're pretty resourceful, but it wasn't worth the risk. If another joint failed and they were unable to get the arm back in its cradle, or worse, close the payload bay doors, they would have a critical problem. So McCandless and Stewart made the best of the situation and practiced the approach and capture with Spaz-01 still in the payload bay. They also brought the MMU out again, which continued to perform great. Now I'm sure there's one thing a lot of you are wondering. These guys flew 320 feet away from the shuttle with no tether? What would happen if the MMU broke? The glib response I've given to people who have asked me this in the past is, yeah, you need some sort of space shuttle to go get them. (laughs) But really, that's basically it. The crew had practiced procedures to go retrieve a stricken MMU astronaut if necessary. So while risky, it wasn't totally crazy. In fact, practicing those procedures seems to have come in handy. During the second EVA, a foot restraint came loose and drifted up and out of the payload bay. Commander Vance Brand essentially told the guys in the back to make sure that they were holding on to something, thrust it up after it, Then McCandless went scooting after the wayward equipment. After a couple more blips of the thrusters, McCandless was able to grab the device, and the crew avoided creating one more piece of space debris. Not content to have just one first on this mission, STS-41B also decided to make the landing interesting. That's because once everything was packed away, spacewalkers returned inside, and everyone strapped in, Challenger descended into an uneventful re-entry and touched down somewhere new. Seven days, 23 hours, and 16 minutes after lifting off, 
Challenger landed only five or six miles from where it started at Launch Complex 39A. On the orbiter's 10th flight, Vance Brand stuck the landing and became the first shuttle commander to land at the shuttle landing facility, the gigantic runway at the Kennedy Space Center. Instead of the usual 747 to get back from Edwards or White Sands, Challenger could simply be towed the couple of miles back to its orbiter processing facility. Such convenience. STS-41B hit a number of problems, but it cleared the way for STS-41C, so in that regard, it was a complete success. Next time, we've tested the tools, the orbital maneuvers, and the futuristic jetpack required to rescue the Solar Max mission. But just what is this mission? What's wrong with it? What needs to be done to fix it? And, oh geez, what is that astronaut doing grabbing onto its solar panels? Normally, this is the part where I say my sign-off and the outro music swells, but real quick, I'm going to do something a little unusual. I normally try to avoid present-day references on the show since it can kind of give the thing a shelf life, but every once in a while, something important comes along and I just can't help it. Out in theaters right now is a documentary called Apollo 11, created by Todd Douglas Miller. The reason I mention this is that it apparently had almost no marketing budget, and a lot of people haven't heard about it, or are confusing it with the 1995 film Apollo 13. It also has an extremely short run in theaters, especially IMAX. So I'm telling you to drop whatever you're doing, unless it's giving me a nice review on iTunes, and go see this movie. It's staggering. I just about passed out in the build-up to launch. I know people who have driven two hours each way to see this thing in IMAX and had zero regrets. Sorry to those of you who will hear this way after the fact, but if just one person sees this movie in theaters who wasn't planning on it before, then it will be worthwhile. The people making this movie aren't paying me or anything, I just really want to help spread the word about this incredible film. And I guess since I already messed up the usual flow of the ending, I'll take one last quick second to say that if anyone would like to reach out and say hi, you can email me at jp at thespaceabove.us. You can also just go to thespaceabove.us for other contact methods and a little bit of other info. Anyway, continuing on with the outro, what is that astronaut doing grabbing onto its solar panels? Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass. (laughs) 